Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, please we pray. Uh, open our eyes to the wonder of this passage this morning. Uh, you preserved it for our benefit, and uh, we need your help to understand it and to be truly blessed through it and by it. So please we pray. Uh, may your spirits do that wonderful work in our hearts as we reflect and sit under your word this morning. Amen. The Bible likens our life in this world as a journey. We are journeying through this life ultimately to the new creation. Uh, a wonderful Christian book which was written which encapsulates this Bible truth uh, was Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, the whole uh, story uh, of a man on the way to ultimately uh, to heaven, the celestial city. And all the things which assail him uh, on that journey. It's a wonderful uh, book which very much encapsulates uh, this biblical truth that if we're trusting in Christ, we're on a journey through this life to ultimately the celestial city. Now here is an image from uh, one of the uh, parts of the story, which um, is actually important. I mentioned this last week, and I'll plug it again. Um, there's a, it's been rewritten for families. Uh, put into simple English, uh, and it's very good, therefore, to read with the kids. The Family Pilgrim's Progress, uh, published by Focus. So please do uh, give these as copies to your friends and families and use them in your own. Uh, I'm going to pick up, therefore, on Pilgrim's Progress in the family edition, uh, when Christian on his journey uh, is now in the hands of some shepherds who are helping him on his way. He's just had a very uh, shocking experience where he's, he's actually seen and heard uh, people who are in hell, uh, and he's been quite shaken by that, uh, but they're still on their journey. So, uh, let's pick up the story. By this time, hope, hopeful, that's the Christian's companion, and Christian were eager to be on their way again. So the shepherds escorted them over the mountains for some distance. Then watchful, another character, uh, looked around at his friends and said, let's show them the gates of the heavenly city. Uh, they agreed. So Christian and Hopeful were taken up to a nearby hill called Clear and told to look through a special telescope in a certain direction. Their hands were still shaken from the shock of seeing Hell's byway and so they couldn't hold the telescope completely steady. This meant that the picture wasn't as clear as it might have been. But even so, they were able to catch a glimpse of some gates with bright lights all round them. The sight was just the boost they needed to send them happily on their way again. So, there they are. Uh, they glimpse their destination. It's distant and it's shaky, but it is glorious. And it encourages them on their way to the heavenly city. In our passage today, uh, we are coming to the end of a section which started uh, back in chapter 8, verse 18. And it's all to do with how Christians can face life in a fallen, fractured world with confidence. And what we started to see last week is that God has furnished Christians with three with helpers on the journey as they travel through life on this road to glory. Uh, the one we looked at last week was the first of the three, and it was the future hope of glory. Uh, we saw last week, we groan now, but we look forward with confidence to the day when Christ will return. And then we, of course, and the whole of the creation are going to be restored we're going to be released from our bondage to decay and death. And then we will enjoy glory in all its perfection. 
And so it's that hope of glory that propels us forward on the journey. Uh, But this passage tells us today of two more vital helpers who assist us on the road to glory. They're in the first half of our passage, which John had read to us. So firstly, not not only do we have the future hope of glory, but also we have the Spirit's help in prayer. Do you find there are times when you don't know what to pray? Uh, Maybe you are facing a deep personal loss. Uh, Maybe you feel crushed by a weight of grief. Maybe you've experienced the paralysis of a huge life-changing decision which you feel is bigger than you. Uh, Maybe you are confounded and defeated by your own failings and flaws. And in those situations, often as Christians, we don't know what to pray. Uh, The weight is too great, and we can't think rationally. Uh, We should pray, uh, God, your will be done, but sometimes we can't pray that, or we won't pray that. But the point is this. When we can't pray, when we struggle to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Uh, we, do know, we do not know what to, we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. See how verse 26 starts? In the same way. In other words, just as our hope helps us in our weakness, the hope of glory, so also the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us to pray. And when we can't pray, the Spirit can pray. And as we groan and struggle to pray, the Spirit groans with the prayers that we are unable to articulate. And of course, the Father knows everything. He perceives the turmoil of our hearts. And he is then receptive to the prayers of the Spirit on our behalf. Look at verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So you see, the Spirit's groans, his prayers, they are informed, whereas ours aren't. Uh, The Spirit knows what to pray for us. He prays perfectly for us in our suffering. And God answers those prayers because they are in line with his will for us. As we groan, as the creation groans, the Spirit groans with us as we patiently wait for Jesus to come back. So, uh, in the midst of hard times now, the Christian can rest in the future hope of glory and the Spirit's help in prayer now. But there is a third helper as the Christian travels the road to glory through the difficulties of life now. Uh, When you are in the midst of suffering, uh, do you ask yourselves any of these questions? Uh, Where is the good in this? Uh, Is there a positive side to this? Uh, Is there something which will make this suffering worthwhile? You see, for the dark clouds of suffering to have no silver lining of positive purpose is a counsel of despair. Romans 8 verse 28 has to be one of the most best known and most precious promises to Christians in the midst of hard times. Look at it on the screen. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. Do you get that? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What a beautiful promise. It is like a glass of chilled water to a parched throat. It's an absolute watertight guarantee that God will use all things, good or bad, happy or sad, to bring about good in the life of a Christian. And all things means all things. The bad and the sad, as well as the happy and the good. It also means the little things of life, the seemingly senseless things that happen. You see, we know that ultimately with God, there is no such thing as an accident. God is sovereign over the big things and the small things of life, the macro and the micro. God is working even in the everyday decisions we make. Uh, there's that interesting proverb, isn't there, in Proverbs 16, verse 33, which says this. Uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So you see, it means that we are not in the grip of fate. It means that the universe is not run by blind chance, but by a person, our loving Heavenly Father. And it means that we can relax in his sovereign oversight of our lives. We don't need to fear whatever life throws at us. Uh, there's a great quote by this uh, wonderful 18th century pastor and hymn writer, John Newton. Uh, he encapsulated this uh, beautifully when he put it like this. I hope it's going to be on the screen. Yes. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Beautifully encapsulated. God is sovereign over our lives. If we need anything, he'll send it. And if we don't need it, then he'll, he's, he's at liberty and he will withhold it. So, it means this. We can look at life's troubles as part of God's loving program for our lives. It means there is purpose in the pain. It's not to say that the troubles themselves are good, but God will use them for our good. Uh, they are not good, but the results can be. Uh, do you see how liberating this is? It means this. Uh, we cannot ruin God's good purpose for our lives. Uh, this even stands true when we make bad decisions, sinful decisions. Uh, sin is always bad. Uh, and sin does carry consequences. And God does not shield his children from the consequences of their actions. And in that sense, we may well live with regrets as the painful consequences of sinful decisions are outworked in our lives. But the point is this. God will use even our sinful choices for our ultimate good. Uh, it, may we, well, it may well be that through our mistakes... God humbles us and he teaches us a right view of ourself. Now the question we need to ask is, because this is a very precious promise, uh, to whom does the promise apply? Uh, God gives the assurance of all for good, but, does, but he does not give the assurance to all. Uh, do you notice, he works all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, the promise is not for people generally, 
but for the Christian specifically. And the question then which follows is, what is this good that God has committed himself to bringing into the life of his children? That God's idea of good is much greater and it's much higher than our idea of good. Uh, Verse 29 then defines the good. Uh, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the good? Is it a life of ease? Is it a life of health? Is it a life of financial prosperity? No, it isn't. It's much deeper. The good is much more profound. The good which God works is more eternal and long-lasting than those. The good is glorious character change. If only, if only, we could get a glimpse of humanity's original glory, made in the image of God, designed to delight in life and love. And yet, tragically, of course, that image has been marred and defaced by sin. But again, we get a glimpse of humanity's glory in Jesus. He is the second Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. Jesus is humanity restored in the image of God. And now God is restoring each Christian to the image of Christ. He is the prototype of the new, perfected humanity. And so God works everything in our lives so that we are conformed increasingly to the likeness of his Son. He is making us more loving. He's making us more noble. He's chipping away at sin. He's making us more true and wise, stronger and more joyful. He's making us more kind, just like the Lord Jesus himself. You see, he's slowly stripping away all that mars and maims us as people. He's getting rid of the sin that disfigures the beauty of what we were truly intended to be. Uh, Tim Keller's got a great quote. He puts it this way. Uh, Let me read it to you. God has a master design. That is his son. And now every circumstance is designed to shape, to polish, to melt, to smooth, to sculpt, to frame, to cast and to contour us into that master design. It's great. Well put, Tim. So you see, therefore, hard times are hard, but they are like the refiner's fire. Uh, They purify us like metal. Uh, When I look at my own life, I see that the hard times have been the times when God has really done a deeper work in my heart. Those are the times when I've had much earnest soul searching. Those are the times when I've really prayed earnestly. Those are the times when I've seen the weight of sin in my own life. And I've said, God, change me. And he has. Hard times do humble us, but they also, God uses them to change us. So that's the first half of our passage today. Uh, We've seen uh, the second and the third of the helpers on the road to glory. Uh, Now in the last half of the passage, we move to verses 29 to 39, and we see now the certainty of reaching that glory. It's all about how God will finish the work that he has started in us. Look at verse 29. 
for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, there's a lot going on in those, ver- those two verses. Uh, it's, it's been referred to as the unbreakable chain to glory. There's a whole sequence of events. One follows after the other. And the end point is glory, the unbreakable chain to glory. Uh, what Paul is doing is this. He's tracing the trajectory of God's saving purposes from their very origin, from their conception in the mind of God, to their consummation in the new creation. And he's tracing this amazing salvation arc, this chain. Uh, It's a breathtaking glimpse of the process of salvation. Uh, If you want to be clever and impress your friends, uh, the Latin for this is the order salutis, which means the order of salvation. So let's look at each of these five stages in turn. And the first link in this chain is God's foreknowledge of those who will be his children. Uh, It starts with, uh, for those God foreknew. Uh, The obvious question to ask is this. uh, What does it mean for God to foreknow? Uh, A common misunderstanding is that God's foreknowing means God's foreseeing. Uh, In other words, foreknowing means God foresees those who will believe. Well, of course, it's true that God does know the future, but this is not what foreknowing means here. Uh, In the Bible, when we are told that God knows someone, uh, it's relational. Uh, At the final judgment, Jesus says that he will turn away from those who have not placed their faith in him uh, with these devastating words recorded for us in Matthew 7.23. I never knew you. Away from me you evildoers. Jesus is not saying that on that final judgment day he won't know anything about these people. It's not informational knowledge. It's relational knowledge. I do not know you. I have no relationship with you. There is no saving relationship between you and me. Depart from me. You are not recipients of my love and my mercy through faith. So foreknowing is relational Uh, We could therefore say to foreknow means to forelove. Those God foreknows are those whom he has chosen to set his love on in a personal way. He chooses whom he will love. And we see this foreloving choice in God's taking of Israel, the nation, as his own special people. And look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8. It says this, the Lord did not set his affections on you, this is talking about the nation of Israel, and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Israel as his special people? Because he chose to do so. He chose to love them. It wasn't based on their merit but on God's loving choice. And God has made that loving choice of his people. 
And it's staggering when we look to the New Testament letter of Ephesians because we see there that God made this choice in eternity past, even before the world was created. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 4. Speaking of Christians, uh, Paul says this. For he, that is God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So there it is, the first link in the chain. God's foreknowing. It's this foreloving. He chooses whom he will love. Uh, The second link in the chain uh, is what we call uh, predestination. Look at verse 29 again. Uh, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Uh, As the word suggests, to predestine means to set the destination. And because of his love for us, God has set a destination for us uh, to be with him in glory, conformed to the likeness of Christ. Again, Ephesians 1, picking up uh, verse 4 and going on to verse 5, it says this. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Let's keep moving along this chain to glory. Uh, we come then to the third link. It's, called, it's the call of God. Look at verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. That when God calls someone... What he's doing is he's actually activating his redemption plan in their life. It's the point in time when God's forelove of a person becomes a reality in their life. It's when God acts to save somebody. We know, of course, from reading a wider reading in the New Testament that God gives people his Holy Spirit. Before they are Christians, the Holy Spirit is active in their hearts shining light into their hearts to waken them to the truth. They need to understand, of course, the truth of who they are, a sinful people desperately in need of forgiveness, and the truth of who Jesus is, their Saviour. And the Spirit does that work, convicting and revealing. And so, therefore, you see, as we hear the good news of Jesus preached, the Spirit does that work in our hearts, and we respond in faith. We're responding to God's call on our lives. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5 encapsulate it beautifully, this whole uh, calling of God as we hear the gospel. Uh, Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, are loved by God, he's speaking to Christians, that he has chosen you. How do we know he's chosen them? Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, and with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. There it is, the call of God with the work of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's keep moving along the chain to glory. Uh, The fourth link is justification. If you recall, that's not guilty verdict. Uh, Verse 30, those he called, he also justified. Uh, God's Spirit-empowered call enables those who hear it to believe And of course, at that point, they are justified by their faith. They are declared not guilty before a holy God. 
And then the fifth and final link in this chain to glory is the glory itself. It is the goal of everything. Verse 30 continues. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, We've seen, haven't we, in previous weeks, uh, to be glorified is what happens when Christ returns, when Christ perfects us in body and in soul. The strange thing is, you'd expect, of course, Paul to use here the future tense. Surely he should be saying, and those God justified, he also will glorify. But he doesn't say that. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, Paul is being quite clever here. He's actually uh, deliberately using this literary device. What he's saying is this. So certain is the Christian's future glory that it's as if it's already happened. It's as if it's already in the bag, which is why he uses the tense he does. So the whole point of the change of glory is this. It is unstoppable. The Christian is assured of reaching the heavenly celestial city. Glory, it's assured. The Christian is eternally, eternally secure. Secure in God's love. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is nothing. No matter how hard life is now in this fallen, fractured world, God will bring us home to glory. Verse 35 continues. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is, of course, nothing can and nothing will. Look at verse 37. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in conclusion, life in this world will always bear the hallmarks of suffering in different ways. And yet, the Christian can tread the road of life with confidence that God will bring him or her to glory. And the Christian's confidence rests in two great pillars. Firstly, God's sovereign control over our lives. He works all things for our eternal good. And secondly, God's unwavering love for us. It's that confidence which George Matheson expressed in his hymn. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. We know that all our best days lie ahead of us and that one day all our painful days will lie behind us. So, when we are discouraged... When we are weighed down by life, we glean encouragement from the unstoppable chain to glory. If we're trusting in Christ, we remind ourselves that those middle links 
are part of our story. And we say to ourselves, hey, I've experienced God's call on my life. And we look back at the point when we came to faith in Christ. And you say, hey, I know the joy of being justified before God. That freedom of knowing I am now not guilty before him. And we then, it becomes personal. I'm part of this chain. And then we can look back down the chain. We say to ourselves, that means that God chose me out of love before he even made anything. That means that God has already decided my destination in glory before the creation of the world. And then we can look the other way up the chain to the glory itself. And we know that is absolutely my destination. And we see through the telescope the shimmering golden beauty of the heavenly city. Oh, love that will not let me go. Our confidence deepens further when we see the purity and the power of God's love for us. Our love is often self-focused. Uh, Tracy sometimes will look in my eyes and say, Oh, James, I love you. And I look back in Tracy's eyes and say, Oh, honey, I love me too. Self-focused and it ruins the romantic moments. I need to change that line, I grant you. But often our love is self-focused, but God is not. His love is other people-focused. His love is pure. His love is perfect. And God's love is unconditional. And his choice to love us isn't conditional. It's not based on any merit of our own. Uh, he loved us because he loved us. It was his pure choice. Uh, Tim Keller has a word of advice for married men. Uh, the advice also applies to married women as well, but maybe he was speaking at a men's conference at the time. He says this uh, to men. When your wife asks you, why do you love me? He says, be very, very careful what you say. He says, pause. You're in a minefield. And one wrong step. Boom. He says, see, if you say, oh, honey, I love you because you have a great personality, she's going to say, hang on a minute. What happens if I get Alzheimer's and I lose my personality? You're going to love me then? <coughs> uh, if you say, oh, honey, I love you because you have a beautiful, voluptuous figure, she's going to say, hang on a minute. What happens when I get old? Are you going to love me then? So Tim says, there's only really one right answer. Honey... I love you because I love you. It's a choice I've made and nothing will change that. I love you because I love you. And when I give that answer to Tracy, she gets pretty mad at Tim Kalash because she says he's taken all the romance out of our marriage. But there you go. God loves us because he loves us. He has chosen to love us, not based on any merit of our own. And therefore, it is the love which will not let us go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing and no one. He will surely bring those who are his to be with him in glory. Shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your pure and powerful love for us. You chose us before the creation of the world to put your love upon us, to choose us to be members of your people. Uh, thank you for the way you've brought that plan uh, formed before creation into reality throughout history. And you're now moving us to the end point, the glorious end point of life and the new creation. Therefore, help us, we pray, to have a deepening faith in Christ now, a deepening joy in our relationship with him, and a deepening security in our love in him, that nothing we know can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen.